honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, and here's our phrase, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. Most people tremendously underestimate the power of hope, right? But God has made all of us hope-based creatures. We are shaped by our future hopes. It was just this week where I was walking with a college student through the parking lot, and we were talking about his plans for the future, what he hopes to become. And we talked about, imagine two different people given the job of 80 hours a week, sitting in a white room all by yourself, taking a nut, screwing onto a bolt. 80 hours a week. All you get to do. One person is told, you get $15,000 a year for doing that. Other person's told, you're going to be a millionaire. It is their hope of what they are going to get that will drastically change how they look at their present circumstances. What we believe about the future is the main determining thing of how we process all that we experience and how we handle our circumstances now. The job one was an easy one, but let me give you one that I struggle with when I read about this, knowing what would I do? Rodney Stark is a historian, and he is going to show us in his book, The Rise of Christianity, how this obscure, marginal Jesus movement began to become the most dominant world religion in a couple of centuries and he is going to compare how Christians versus pagans deal with disease and plague when the cities stink with death. This is what he writes. Christianity might never have become so dominant a faith had it not been for the health epidemics and Christianity's ability to explain them and offer comfort. In the second century, you have plagues that would sweep through cities. And he's going to compare what the pagans, how they act, and how Christians, even pagan priests, the religious pagans, and he says that the pagans would leave town, pushing their sufferers away and fleeing from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpse as dirty hoping to avert the spread of the fatal disease. Christians, on the other hand, they did not leave town, but they showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves while thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbor and cheerfully accepting their pains, dying in their stead. Why would they do that? Why would Christians stay? We talk about having a go bag, right? We talk about having money and passports and getting out of here. Clearly, it is not their circumstances that actually affect the way they live. It is their hope. It is their hope that helps you process and how you respond to circumstances now. 
those of us that have heard about American Christianity from TV and the prosperity gospel, we believe that heaven comes down now, according to those preachers. And people are therefore happy and content with an iPhone, a 55-inch screen TV, a new car, a great figure, maybe even retirement. If you believe heaven is supposed to come down now, that's what you put your hope in, and you're happy with those things. But if you believe, like the early Christians, in an eternal and a living hope, you will become so humble, so sacrificial, that you'll go to the hardest places in the world, like J&B. You'll enter into the most difficult relationships, even in this church, and they exist. If you're our guests, know that we have our wrinkles too. But you'll throw yourself into the mess. You'll be a servant because you've got an inheritance coming. Take it from the historian Rodney Stark as he wraps it up. I'm not even sure if he's a Christian, so he kind of talks about Christianity in ways that might not be 100% accurate, but this is what he says. Christianity was therefore a system of thought and a feeling. It's more than that, okay? But this is how he's trying to understand it. That's thoroughly adapted to a time of trouble in which hardship, disease, and violent death commonly prevailed. What is he getting at? We are going against the cultural grain this morning. Have you ever heard the expression that you are so heavenly minded, you are of no earthly good? That sentence, when it talks about Christians, it irritates me probably more than any other statement about Christians. Now, I agree with you. You can be of no earthly good. All of us can. But it's not because you are so heavenly minded. It is those that are truly heavenly minded, that have the hope that Romans 8 is going to share with us this morning, that actually makes you of earthly good. It is when your inheritance in heaven, your hope in heaven, can't be touched by circumstances, by even death itself, that gives you the kind of courage to lay down your life and serve others now. It is our future hope that determines how we have the courage to live today. We all can't live without hope, and we have to find our ultimate hope. A hope in God that impacts our present. Let's go ahead and read from God's Word, Romans 8. If you're new to our faith family, we encourage you to use that Red Pew Bible. And to help you find Romans 8, it's page 944 in your Pew Bible. We are going to read verses 17 through 25, or study that part, I should say. But we're going to zoom out a little bit to get the context. We're going to read 20, or 12... And I'm looking at the clock here. I wanted to read all the way through Romans 8, okay? But we're going to do 12 through 25 just to keep it simple, all right? Focusing on 17 through 25. Beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Dear God, we just pray that these words we could treasure up and store in our hearts, and that, Lord, the future, eternal, living, certain hope would activate in our lives to give us courage for this day to live, to fear God, and to obey His commandments. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first point this morning is that we are to be of good courage. Because God promises that your suffering and my suffering, it's not personal, it's not punitive, but it's part of creation's pattern. Verses 17 through 21, Paul addresses the elephant in the room, suffering. What causes you to lose your hope? Pain, grief, suffering. I like how Tim Keller defines suffering. It either means the things that you had in this world that were taken from you, or suffering kept you from having the things you always wanted. You either had it and you lost it, or it kept you from ever getting it. And Paul, in these verses, is not in denial about suffering. There is a painful realism in these verses about suffering. And he believes that being honest about suffering will actually help you hold on to your hope. So he's making a very long and careful argument in verses 18 through 21. You can see that the word for actually begins most of the sentences for this, for that, for this, for that. And he's kind of just building his case over and over and over again. But he wants you to know that you can have suffering and that being aware of suffering will actually give you hope. And help you hold on to it in the midst of it. Not to throw in the towel, but to trust God. How does he do it? The first thing he does in verse 18 is that he wants to offer us perspective. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's putting things in perspective by weighing out present suffering with future glory. He's putting them both on the scale, and he says all of these present sufferings are but a feather compared to a moment of the eternal weight of glory. He says this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. I believe it's here on the screen for you. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Here's his comparison. For this light, 
momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Who is Paul to tell you that your present sufferings are not worthy to be compared of one moment of future glory? Is he some pampered apostle that has never felt the pain keenly like you have? Well, if you look over at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28, you see that Paul kind of takes the cake on winning who has the worst life. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And he says, go ahead, keep a record of all of your present sufferings. You feel like you had a bad life? You feel like you're grieving over the things you seem to be losing? Go ahead, keep a record. He says, go and bring that ledger to God. And when you enter the pearly gates, and God is there, and you offer Him that leisure, know that one instant of glory will outweigh all the debts that you think you've been accruing. How can He say that? Because He wants you to also see not only perspective, but also the pattern of creation. Verses 19 through 21, He goes from us to that creation is going through this. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing, for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. How is that supposed to help you hold on to hope? Talking about creation, talking about the trees, talking about disease, talking about suffering, talking about our globe. How is that supposed to help you hold on to hope? What he wants you to do is this. Don't think that when you suffer, it has only to do with you and your personal circumstances. That's huge. Don't think that your suffering only has to do with you and your personal situation. I've had dear people in this church ask me, Pastor, do you think I'm cursed? Do you think it's because of what I did in the past that we can't fill in the blank? Is my family and I cursed? Is God trying to take out of my hide revenge for the sins that I have done? That's karma, not Christianity. Right? Karma says, you do this, it's going to come back around. Christianity is about grace. And Paul wants you to see your suffering in a different light. Their perspective is, you're a part of all of creation. And just as all of creation is groaning... So are you. It's not personal. You're not being singled out. You're not the only one. It is one of the devil's tactics to add misery to those that are already hurting to say, God's doing this to you because of what you've done. And you're the only one. 
And so we go and we lock ourselves in our room and we separate ourselves from brothers and sisters in Christ and we suffer and we add misery to misery. Suffering touches all of mankind. It's not just personal. Maybe this morning, as our sermon time's coming short, I just want to add a quick application right here. If you struggled with keeping your suffering to yourself and you felt all alone, would you take a step of faith this morning and share the real messy story with someone else? You know how that will help? Two things will happen. First, you'll give that other person permission to do the same. Vulnerability begets vulnerability. You say, I'm struggling in this area, and that person says, I can't believe it. You? I deal with that too. Also, you'll remember that you're not alone, and that will bring hope. Suffering isn't personal, it's not punitive, but I will give you that it's not natural. If you've ever seen a coffin go into the earth and you've hated it, if you've had anger, if you say this should not be, your voice is the same voice that all of us have experienced when we've gone through pain, suffering, and death. It is alien, it is abnormal. Suffering is not natural, but it is judicial. If you're new to church and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian, you have to understand that the suffering that we have in this world goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the very first book of the Bible, the third chapter in it. Adam sinned, and death and suffering and futility and groaning entered all of creation. Why? Because God said so. God said, you eat from this tree, you will surely die. That teaches us a couple things. It teaches us that all of creation is subjected to God's judicial decree. And that it's because of sin that we have the suffering that we have today. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What does that mean for you if you're new to Christianity? It means that all of our problems are not design problems. We can't blame our creator. Like, you know, if he just would have made a better version of me, this world would be at a better place. We need education. We need the right person in office. If we just had the right circumstances, this world would be at peace. No. Our problem is not with our design. Our problem is a moral problem, and it's our God didn't create this world with death in mind. We messed it up. So we can't blame God for the mess that we're in. But you know what this shows us? If every disease and every injustice is a result of one man's sin, church, it shows us how seriously God takes sin. Look at how horrific sin is if all that we've experienced and all that we know about from world TV is because of once in the Garden of Eden. It shows us how serious our sin is and how horrific it is. But it also shows us this, how much God thinks of us because he subjected it. Look at the last two words in verse 20, in hope, in hope. Which brings us to our second point in verse 22. Be of good courage. God promises that your present sufferings are only birth pains. 
Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Suffering is part of what it means to be a Christian, but it is not the whole story. It's not the end of the story. Paul says our present sufferings are but birth pains. You know what that means? If you're in the hospital and you hear groanings or screaming across the hall, it makes a huge difference whether you're in the maternity ward or the oncology unit. You say, Josh, pain is pain. It doesn't really matter what unit you're in, what floor you're on. Okay? Sure, pain is pain, but there's a very real sense that the pain of a mom in labor is different than the pain of somebody experiencing loss and death because of cancer. There's pain that brings life, and there's pain that brings death. And Paul is looking at the whole world. And he says in verse 22, I'll give you an interpretation of what I see. They're birth pains. God is going somewhere with this. I know that when you look at your present sufferings, you are tempted to say, why? There could be no benefit in this. And some Christian comes alongside you and quotes Romans 8.28 and you want to slap them. I get it. All things work together for good. But that's because they didn't preach to you, verse 22, that your pains, even death spasms, are truly just birth pains. Christians, we have to open that slow, creaky door of death and go through, but it leads us to a hallway of life in eternity with God. It is still scary. It still creaks. It still has cobwebs on it. But we trust in the one who says, I'm going somewhere with this. How is that possible? Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How is it possible? Paul says, verse 23, that we have the first fruits. He's taking an agricultural analogy from uh, our Jewish uh, background. They would have been familiar with agriculture, and it's talking about the harvest. And the first fruits give you a peek into what the full harvest is like. It's the first fruits that lets you be able to stand on your tiptoes and to be able to see what is coming. Kids, do you remember what it's like to be in a crowd and not to be able to see, and you want to either stand on the chair, which you're not allowed to do, you're on your tiptoes, or you have to put you on his shoulders so you can look ahead? That's what all of creation is wanting to do. It's standing on its tiptoes, including us, looking for what is going to come. And he says, church, we have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. You could go through Romans 8 and you can see all that the Spirit does. His name is mentioned like 18 times in Romans 8. And you can see all the things that are already beginning to break into your life. There is no condemnation in Christ. You can put to death the flesh. You can walk in the Spirit. You can cry out, Abba, Father. He prays with you. He keeps you hoping. He keeps you through suffering. All of those things, Christian, you have as first fruits now. Can you imagine what glory is going to be? That's just a taste. You want to know what your future looks like? 
He says, get on your tiptoes and look at Jesus. Because Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says this about him. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. What is he called? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does your future look like? It looks like what Jesus looks like. If he's been risen from the dead, there's your future. Amen? How is that possible? How do I actually get that? How do you have that hope this morning that you can inherit, as Andrew said, what is Christ? Well, he switches analogies, and the he there being Paul, he switches analogies to the concept of adoption. It says here in verse 23 that we eagerly await for adoption as sons. Did you know that the Jews did not practice adoption? Paul gets this idea of adoption from the Roman and Greek culture of the day. It has some similarities with our adoption. But for us, we adopt, and we typically adopt younger children. As an American culture, we're prone to probably consider, most of us, not not all, but the younger the better, infants, newborns. But in the Roman world, adoption was done of an adult. The picture is a man who has an heir, or who has no heir, but he has a large estate. And he doesn't just want his estate to go to nothing, he wants to make sure that it goes to someone who's worthy of it. And so this man who has an estate is looking out and he sees a young adult and he goes, he is worthy, he, he has good character, he, he's, he's good in business. I'm going to adopt him so that he can inherit all that I have. So the purpose of adoption in Rome was for a man's inheritance to go to an heir and not just to be thrown to the wind. But God already has a perfect heir, Jesus Christ. Completely sinless. Christ has inherited all that the Father has because of his resurrection from the dead. He has already has the title deed to the whole world, Roman, or Revelation 4 and 5 tells us. How do we get included? Why would he want to include us? The only way that we can get a seat at the table, the only way we can have a share in the Father's inheritance is at the expense of Jesus Christ, our older brother. You guys remember the parable of the prodigal son? There's this young prodigal son who takes all that his dad has and he goes and he squanders it. And his dad's excited when he comes home. He's actually looking for him, and the father goes running. One of my favorite pictures in all of God's word. And they throw a party. The fattened calf is killed, a rose put on him, and a ring is put on him. And the older brother is doing what? Standing out, being a punk, saying, why does he get that? And you know what? He has the right to ask that question because did the prodigal son already get his inheritance? Yes, and he squandered it. So when the dad kills the fattened calf and puts the robe on and a ring on, who is he actually giving whose inheritance from? The older brother. It's actually the older brother's inheritance that, that he gets. And that older brother says he's not worth the expense. But our older brother, Jesus, says what? 
I'll lay down my life because I want you there. I want you at my table. I want you to be included. That's staggering. If you're here and you are still exploring Christianity, you have to know this. God is not naturally your father. That comes from some seminary and some teaching down in Boston, that the universal fatherhood of God, that we're all his children. No, no, you're not. No, I'm not. Adoption takes a choice. Adoption takes a legal activity. We're used to hearing about it here in church in the terms of justification. Turn to your neighbor and say justification. Okay, big fancy word. What does it really mean? When you think about justification, you typically think of God as your judge in that you are a criminal and you have done this horrific deed. We call it sin in church. Yes, we are still used to using an old-fashioned word called sin because the Bible uses it. It describes it better than anything else. And God, as the judge, because Christ decides to be your substitute, He pardons you. That's the gospel. And we call that good news. And we're used to hearing it. But adoption escalates it. Because what judge, what governor, if he pardons a criminal? That's great. You get to go free. Have you ever known a governor that not only pardons a criminal, but then says, you know what, I'm going to give you a medal. I'm going to give you a, a job in my office, and you can work for me. Even greater. What governor would say, I know you've been a criminal, but I'm going to bring you into my house. I'm going to take you. <laughs> and have you sit at my table. I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to have you inherit all of my wealth. Truly, J.I. Packer is right. A Christian, you want to understand how well you understand Christianity? It's how well do you understand that you're adopted by God. The highest privilege is for God to adopt anyone. And so we see our last point. Be of good courage. God promises that hope heals. God promises that my sufferings are not personal. They're not punitive. They're part of creation's pattern. He promises that my suffering is only labor pains. And he promises that I can be adopted into his forever family. No wonder John cries out, Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the sons of God. Would you allow God's hope to heal you this morning? We talk about taking a step of faith at Faith Community Bible Church. And I want to share with you just a couple of applications where the rubber meets the road. Will you resolve to allow hope to heal your perspective? Unless this truly is your hope, unless you can truly reckon it, unless you can truly remember it, unless you're able to live as if you actually are wealthy, even though you can't touch it right now, you will not be able to handle the problems in life. You will not be able to face them. You will be like a newborn king in a cradle. Here you are as a newborn king, 
fussing because somebody took your rattle. And you can't actually even yet understand what is really yours. You're an infant king. You're upset because somebody took your rattle. Can you identify with that this morning? I can. Why am I so upset this week? Because this hasn't gone right. Or because that hasn't gone right this week. Somebody took my rattle. But if you're able to say, in this hope we are saved, for I reckon the present time, my sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. The rattles are being taken away from us. But it doesn't compare with the inheritance that I have. I'm going to be rich. That's how a son of the king talks. Will you resolve to allow hope to heal your trust? I've come to realize that believing in God is not possible without believing God. You can't believe in God if you don't believe what God says. Some of you say, I can't trust God because this came into my life. And I ask you, why can't you trust God? Well, God isn't explaining, explaining to me why. Why this hasn't happened. And what that really means is, I don't want to behave like a child. I don't want to think of myself as God's child. I want God to explain to me why this is happening or else I won't trust him. But every adult here, have you ever told to your child, child, you can't know this right now. You have to what? You trust me. And every time we doubt God and we don't want to trust him, you know what we're saying? I don't want to live as an adopted son. But a true child relates to the father with love and with freedom. I can trust you. I enjoy your house. I enjoy being in there. But a slave relates to God as a master and creator, always anxious and always worried. Is that you this morning? Maybe you've forgotten that you're adopted. And last, will you resolve to allow hope to heal your courage? You know, it is only a child who can walk into a king's bedroom at 2 a.m. and ask him for a cup of water. No one else can do that. His wife, the queen, couldn't do that. His servants certainly couldn't do that. But a child can walk into the king's bedroom at 2 a.m. and say, Dad, I need this. So even though God's in control of our suffering, it doesn't mean that we don't pray with boldness. It doesn't mean we don't come and talk to him about everything and talk to him constantly. That's what children do. And I didn't get a chance to read it, but the rest of Romans 8 talks about how the Spirit helps you do that. You've been given the Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. And when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for you, groaning. Have you seen that in your Bible study this week when we encourage you on the weekly gathered? Creation groans, we groan, and even the Spirit groans. Mind-boggling. Are you able to handle your sufferings? as an adopted child of God, joint heir with Christ. Until you fill your mind with the greatness of God's wisdom, the greatness of his grace through Jesus Christ, 
that he can take your creator and make him your father, and that Christ can be your brother, your life will be bitter. Take these three promises and be of good courage until you won't need your faith anymore and hope is made sight. To resolve to do this together, would you please stand with me and let's say the Apostles' Creed. Here is our hope. It's in who God is. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and He's seated at the right hand of God. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection. Amen. Would you stand and sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? You already are standing.